RNZ National, it's time now for Midweek Media Watch, and this week with Hayden Donnell. Kia ora, Hayden. Kia ora, Karen. You sound a little better this week. Oh, do I? I was worried that my voice would never go back to normal, so I'm happy to hear that. You've recovered from COVID, and we're very happy to have you back. You want to start tonight with a quick fact check for Doctor Who fans. That's right, starting with the most important stuff, as always. So on Monday, One News opened an item on the new Doctor Who with the following words. And now the dimension-hopping Time Lord's going through a history-making change. The Dalek-busting baton is being passed from the first woman to play the role to a gay Scottish actor whose family fled the Rwandan genocide. That's Simon Dallow describing new Doctor Who Shuti Gatwa, and there's one problem with that. Gay or Scottish? He is Scottish. Shutigatwa isn't openly gay, though, and he's never discussed his sexuality. So it's possible here that One News was confused by the fact that he plays an openly gay character in the Netflix show Sex Education. But outside of the fictional realm, their statement was not accurate. And this was pointed out to Media Watch by a slightly miffed Doctor Who fan, who you do not want to get on the wrong side of. So he wanted to correct the record. And furthermore, our correspondent also disputed this fact asserted a bit later on. But now the Doctor's facing real-life extermination. Speculations rife ratings have tanked in recent years, with the BBC bringing back the man responsible for its highly successful 2005 reboot to save it. Now that statement from One News is a bit more credible than the one that uh, one about Gatwa's sexuality, but there are still some qualms that the correspondent had with it. The show's producer, Doctor Who's producer, has denied the reports about low ratings, and the show is, by most metrics, still pretty successful. The decision to bring in Russell Davies as well was potentially less about saving the show, but more because the former showrunner, Chris Chibnall, was departing, and it was a planned move. Anyone who knows, uh, uh, who works in news, knows not to annoy Doctor Who fans, though, so I thought it would be best for the nation's media watchdog to correct the record on those things. <laughs> do they? Anyone who works in news knows not to annoy Doctor Who fans. What do they do? I don't know. I just feel like that's a fan base that's a bit of a stickler for correct information and particularly correct information on Doctor Who. Quite right as well. So from mm. entertainment news to climate change and a major achievement from one of Stuff's journalists. Yes, it's been revealed this week that some dogged investigative journalism from Stuff's Olivia Wannan has directly helped to shape our government's climate policy. Mm, what, what did her reporting reveal? Now, this is pretty complicated as climate change stories tend to be. So I, I'm going to try and briefly explain it or just simplify it. So basically, when the government first announced its carbon budgets, which govern what the country is allowed to emit over the next four years, it proposed a figure of 292 million, which was uh, tons of carbon. So that was 2 million tons of carbon over what the Climate Commission recommended, 290 million tons. And it explained that uh, it was that, that, that discrepancy was based on some Ministry of Primary, Primary Industries advice, which said new forests couldn't be planted without releasing significant amounts of soil carbon, is what it said. But that sounded weird to stuff, and it wasn't actually true. Olivia Wannan went digging and found they got some of that advice wrong. The extra carbon didn't need to be emitted, and she pointed this mistake out to MPI and they admitted their mistake and said that it was genuine human error. 
Yeah, that's incredible. Good on her. Yeah, and it doesn't sound right, does it, that planting trees uh, releases soil carbon? So how, how has that actually changed our climate policy? Yeah, well, the long and short of it is that New Zealand will definitely emit 2 million fewer tonnes of carbon over the next four years. And not only that, the government also shaved 2 million tonnes of carbon off its budgets for 2025 to 2030 and 2031 to 2035. Those ones aren't locked in, though, so they'll be reviewed closer to the time. But all up, that's 6 million tonnes that we're planning not to emit anymore. That's as much as the Huntley Power Station emits in a two-year period. So that's not bad for one story by one reporter. Not bad at all. Has the government admitted that stuff's reporting actually influenced its decision-making? Yeah, so quite unusual, right? They've said that Wannan's reporting was a major driver of its adjustments. And from what I've heard, Climate Minister James Shaw was initially a little bit puzzled at being confronted by stuff's questions, but he did ask officials to investigate and has now obviously responded accordingly. Right, so whilst the media can influence how the government might spin things, well, this has had a direct influence actually on policy. Yes, exactly. I mean... Reporting does often influence political decisions. You know, the media will drive a, a politician out if they're engulfed in scandal or that kind of thing. But the picture isn't often so black and white and the line isn't so directly drawn between story and policy outcomes. So this is pretty direct, as the Forever Project's editor Eloise Gibson said on Twitter, climate journalists sometimes wonder if they're making any difference. But there are no such qualms for Olivia Wannan today. Absolutely. It must be a pretty dark time sometimes being a climate journalist, so I'm glad that there's a little bit of a ray of light. It does point to the value of setting up a dedicated climate team. Yes, I think it does. I'm really not sure that something this complicated and in-depth would have been identified or sort of sought out by journalists that weren't fully across the nitty-gritty of the subject. So there is real value in having these types of journalists. Stuff has dedicated climate journalists. They set up a dedicated climate section. These journalists who can scour carbon budgets and work out discrepancies and ministerial advice and do that kind of thing. But I do want to point out that, that this isn't the only type of climate reporting. And as newsrooms Mark Dalder has often said, Every journalist is a climate journalist now, and that's never been more clear than after the recent IPCC report on climate change, which delivered a comprehensive set of suggestions on how governments can effectively reduce their emissions. And lots of those suggestions are to do with topics that we cover every day as reporters and often don't even associate with climate change. So they recommend dense housing close to the centre of town, public transport. Uh, they recommend uh, cycleways. <laughs> Uh, and these topics, particularly, uh, well, transport, but particularly housing, definitely housing, they're not always covered as climate topics, you know? Even though the IPCC puts them front and centre in our efforts to combat climate change. In fact, when covering these topics, the media often fails to mention climate change at all. Can you give us an example? I do have something in mind. <laughs> Uh, newsroom carried an article yesterday how it headlined housing's sword of Damocles and it was entirely focused on what it kind of painted as reduced house sale prices for existing homeowners and I mean and that's despite these homeowners having seen their house prices rise in, in real terms so adjusted in 500 percent 
over the last 40 years, and that's 200% higher than the next highest OECD country, the UK. The article raises concerns that some of those people won't be able to sell their houses for quite as big a markup following the passage of government legislation enabling more housing in cities. And in its words, from the moment the council publicised its response to that legislation, many millions of dollars would have been silently sliced from the values of properties and zones earmarketed. Not sure if that's a spelling error for intensive housing. Uh, in its eyes, that's because these homeowners will have limited opportunity to sell to developers and difficulty selling to ordinary buyers who fear apartments going up next door. That's the other side of the thing that is often left out. But dense housing is actually probably our most effective tool in, in the fight against climate change to mitigate climate change because it allows people to live lower carbon lifestyles and it makes public transport more viable and it makes walking and cycling more viable. And so many of our emissions, like this is what the scientists were saying, so many of our emissions are coming from transport and cars in particular. So uh, actually building dense housing close to the centre of town in particular is our best weapon against climate change. How would you put that in a story? This is You put me on the spot <laughs> here, Karen, but I often think, as in with the, with the RAM raids, that there could just be a little sentence that says, this comes in the context of, you know, in the case of the RAM raids, uh, a drastic reduction in youth crime over the last 10 years. Yeah, or, easily uh, done, really, isn't it? Yes. I mean, this comes in the context of, you know, a climate crisis which demands that uh, people live lower carbon lifestyles along with a housing crisis that has placed extreme pressure on us to house the homeless and people who are renting in terrible situations. And and also, it's only about those who own homes and not about those who might be renting homes. Yeah, exactly. So the the audience is almost assumed to be uh, homeowners. And maybe that's fine. You know, every story has to have an angle. Not every story is going to cover every single group that's affected by a topic. But it doesn't mention renters at all. And they're the ones that stand to benefit the most from those apartments and they're a lot of the reason why we're building all those apartments because people want secure rentals and they want to be able to own a house. And that emission is a little bit surprising from Newsroom given it pr printed another really good story this week focused on the often dire plight of the people renting in this country. All right, who did that one? Now, that one is by Massey journalism students Mary Argue, James Pocock and Lucy Revel. And it's a pretty extensive account of how the country's tenancy laws leave renters in substandard accommodation with little recourse against their landlords. And it traces multiple tenants who take their cases to the tenancy tribunals. Often they've been living in windowless rooms, you know, dire accommodation, mouldy. One, one of them, one of them uh, was looking down at her be uh, their bedspread and thought there was dust on it, but it turned out to be mould growing there. I, I mean, uh, the tribunal, despite that, often knocks them back, and uh, the story paints a picture of a place that's kind of weighted in favour of property owners, a system that's weighted in favour of property owners. It's exhaustively reported as well, and really well written, and uh, if it's an indication of the quality of our journalism students, then the industry is in pretty good hands, I think. Oh, that's a nice positive story. Congratulations to those three. And I believe that the story on the Mouldy Rentals, it also contains an interesting postscript. Yes, James Hollings, the Massey Journalism Lecturer, writes at the end of the story that the writers wanted to name the landlords involved in some of these cases but couldn't 
uh, because a lawyer had advised them that the story is defamatory. Now, that that lawyer, uh, of course, they're going to say it's defamatory. It's a story that's negative about the, those people. Uh, the journalists involved, they could have defended themselves in court using the defense of truth, but there's no guarantee they'd win that case in either way. They're journalism students. The cost from taking that to court would likely have been ruinous for them, and James Hollings sees this as just an indication of how our defamation laws are not fit for purpose and a relic of what he says is 18th century law and inappropriate for a modern-day setting. So what are laws like elsewhere? Can you say whatever you like about whomever you like? Well, uh, not necessarily, but you, you'll note that in places like the US, free speech is a lot more uh, elevated and enshrined as a value that is worth protecting. And that is the real concern about our system. You know, as defenders will say, oh, it's just meant to ensure that people's reputations can't be harmed by an unethical journalist. That's not the way it works in practice. In practice, it's often used as a way for rich people, like these landlords, to bully others into silence. And <laughs> there's not equal access to the system, of course. It's usually rich people that can afford lawyers because poor people can't uh, afford lawyers to take other people to court for defamation. So really, it does amount to a protection for uh, the more privileged among us. And we've seen that with Colin Craig, who put his former press secretary, Rachel McGregor, through a series of defamation battles, despite successive judges ruling against him. For instance, Graham Edgeler, the lawyer, and Hollings, he's spoken to me at Media Watch before, about how our defamation law could be one of our most, our country's most chilling threats to free speech. And that sounds like something a free speech so-called union could be speaking up about, but they often seem to be too busy complaining that some anti-Muslim alt-right speaker can't book a council venue. Would our free speech union be a euphemism for Sean Plunkett's new media venture, The Platform? <laughs> a little bit, <laughs> eh? That, that does actually, they, there's a little bit of a confluence. There's definitely synergies uh, between the ideology of our free speech union and The Platform, which launched on Monday this week. And, you know, you might have thought with the lineup of Sean Plunkett, Michael Laws, Martin Devlin, other controversial figures, that it would be all firebrand radio all the time. But Sean Plunkett initially struck a pretty different tone, laying down these ground rules. There are some rules, folks. Let's try and play the ball, not the person. Let's look for common ground rather than pick an argument. And when we have to, let's agree to disagree. Yes, so uh, did that last? Didn't actually last. So uh, shortly thereafter, Sean Plunkett had this to say about the environmentally conscious among us. And it, it kind of looks good on paper, doesn't it? And it'll make, I guess, you know, the hippies and the mung bean munchers feel good about saving the planet. Um, but it's... Yeah, but only because they're not being honest, Sean, about actually the cost that goes into making those people the child labour to mine the minerals that go into the batteries. So we, we've covered a, a lot of reporting that's not too friendly towards climate action this week, and that's the last the last bit that we'll we'll play here. Sean Plunkett taking on the mung bean munchers. It's <laughs> a very long time since I've heard that. It's, he's showing his age, isn't he? I, I I haven't heard it. This is it. I'm what am I? Thirty six. Goodness. I mean, I'll leave you with that, but I don't, want you, to, I don't want you to think that that's the last that Media Watch is going to cover the platform. We, we're going to have a much more extensive report on it uh, from Colin this Sunday. He's been he's been all week. He's just been 
listening to nothing but the platform, so I'm sure that he'll be across it. He's earmarketed it. <laughs> yeah, he's been earmarketed to do the story <laughs> about the platform this weekend. Look forward to that. Oh, great stuff. Thank you very much, Hayden, and glad to hear you're feeling better, and we'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. Thanks, Karen.